Welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! So we're not wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for July. It's you know it's been a mixture of sun and rain. The weather doesn't know. My lawn is looking absolutely fantastic. It's just one of those things. It's full of splendor. Sometimes the rain makes me want to swear. It makes me want to use the F word, but I've decided if I'm going to use the F word, then I need an expert on the F word to come and help me use F words. You could say this person he's a little bit of an odd bird um potentially started off as an ugly duckling but pretty quickly turned himself into a swanson and left his mark on the board game industry he's had his little fiefdoms in the past maybe he's had his even little, little bits of his feudums in the past so here to talk to us about everything that could be fled to everything that could be fur i've got mark swanson from odd bird games hello there sir wow that was really good richard i don't think i can top that you don't have to Most worry about the intro it's not like we take it's not like we take turns. it's not like right okay now you go it's like whose line is it anyway or something like that it's like well i've done my intro here's your selection here's your selection of words um do you know where right because people listen to this all the time and some people comment on the intros do you know i we got this from because I used to work in a a kind of a call center sales office. And when you're doing call center sales office things and you're saying the same thing again and again and again, it kind of gets dull, especially if you're having a conversation with people who are kind of having a conversation with you because they have to have a conversation with you because you're their service provider. So in order to alleviate the boredom, we used to just take random words and try and fit them into the conversation. <laughs> like fiducery. <laughs> things, like, things like that. Mesop- totally Mesopotamia. You know. Yes. Um, yes. That's actually that that's actually how I met my first wife. Uh, I don't want to really go into that story though. Uh, but the key word was watermelon, and it was a non sequitur. But um, I, you know, early in my career, i i was uh, I was on on the phone with um, yeah. little old ladies that used to call into a toaster factory. I worked toast, wow. toaster factory. I used to work for Toastmaster, uh, not the public <laughs> speaking organization, but the actual manufacturer of toasters. And they would call, and they would say. You know, I am not able to get my piece of bread into this toaster oven. There doesn't seem to be enough space. Yeah. And we yeah. go through all kinds of uh, rigmarole to learn that, you know, the entire machine was upside down. Uh, <laughs> so, so you're right, though. You end up 
um, entertaining yourself uh, with your own witticisms because, yeah, people can kind of be monotonous sometimes on a call center. Yeah, and you're saying the kind of the same thing, and you've got to kind of act surprised when they give you a specific specific bit of information. Oh, you're going to be using it for a car. Well, that sounds wonderful kind of thing. And it's like you're the fifth person in the last hour that's told me you're going to be using this particular thing for a car. So, um, you know, let's kind of, you know, move it on. Um, so a call center boy, then I had a toaster. I, 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 I mean, do you go through training for that? Did you have one? Cause usually on these kind of things, you have like a three week kind of, um, a three week kind of crash course. And then they put you on the phones to kind of answer the questions. I mean, I take it. Um, okay. So here's a question for you. I mean, I'm considering you are a little bit of an expert in toasterology. Okay. <laughs> on a toaster. Okay. The numbers on the numbers that go around the toaster, and this is probably just a beginning kind of, you know, this is probably kind of kindergarten type question, but the numbers on the toaster are usually about like one to six or one to seven. Are they mm -hmm. a measurement? Are they a measurement of toastiness? Are they a measurement of, because some people say it's time and other people say it's levels of toastiness. What's the definitive answer? <laughs> it's just one well, well, the way the toaster operates, I can't believe mm. I'm answering this question. <laughs> but the way, so if you put it on, say, three, um, it, will, it will toast for a little longer than if you put it on two. So right. from, from a functional standpoint, it just simply increases the time that the filaments are burning. Uh, from a toastiness standpoint, it does toast yes. your bread a little bit more. So I would say a three and a half is probably ideal. Some people like four. I wouldn't go past five. But is that like minutes? I mean, could you put it on three and then time it? And then what happens if you like put it on three? And if it went three minutes, then you'd be like, you've answered your question. But what happens if you timed it and it was like three minutes, 17 seconds? I mean, have you then unlocked an entire new unit of time? I you mean, know, this is the kind of the, um, this is the kind of the danger. Yeah, no, I, I'd have to go talk to the engineering department uh, to answer that. <laughs> That's a lovely uh, question. I, yeah. <laughs> Put a support ticket in for you. Um, are you are you from a large family, small family, medium sized family? Kind of grow a medium sized family. I I have uh, one sister who is still alive. My other sister mm -hmm. uh, passed on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, so I was the middle child Wow. Okay. and yeah, from a, from a young age, um, my, my dad used to play a lot of board games with us. And that's how, when I first developed my love of board games, notice how I'm trying to kind of, uh, steer it in the direction of board game. <laughs> well, it's either that or we're going to spend the next kind of hour and a half talking about kind of crumpets, tea cakes, waffles. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to get into yeah, to various kind of, yeah. to, we, we could do, but eventually we do have to kind of talk about board games. Did you do what every other family seemed to do, which is to have the kind of the, mono, the monopoly kind of copy? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the quintessential American game, mm. uh, monopoly. And, you know, as a young, young bloke, I thought, you know, that was the long and short of it, right? Monopoly yeah. had 
it was a lot more complicated than a lot of the other games that I played. So I, I learned to play it and play it well. I went to tournaments and all of that. But before what? before what? Monopoly, um, my dad uh, used to, uh, we, we came from a poor family. And so yeah. we didn't really buy games. My dad would actually just make, make uh, games out of paper. It's kind of like the original print and play. Right. Uh, like Stratego, for instance, he, yeah. he had, he had played that before and he, he uh, figured out how to make that game out of paper and, and we would play that game out of paper. And eventually we bought it uh -huh. on Christmas and I enjoyed it and it was pretty strategic, but I soon learned that a lot of the American games, Risk or Stratego, Monopoly, Clue, uh, were, you know, largely based on, on luck. In fact, statisticians reverse engineered monopoly and found it to be about 50% luck. Yeah. So you could, you could know all the price percentage payoffs of every color group and still lose to, you know, your nine-year-old daughter because <laughs> she rolls better than you, you know, and after two hours of intellectual investment to lose because of, of luck, well, that's why people hit the board in monopoly. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder how popular Monopoly would be if they released the kind of the, the kind of the suckered version. And what I mean by that is the thing, it's got like suction cups on the base of the board. So no matter what happens, you can get as angry as you want and make the motion to flip the board. But you literally have to pick up, you have to pick up the entire table to kind of make this thing. Kind of you know, it's it. funny because that's actually a feature in Tabletop Simulator. You, at any time, yeah. you put the board and the pieces go everywhere and then they automatically reset themselves. So that's kind of fun. For you could just that do that. have management issues, I guess. You could just do it again, like, like again and again. So with having that kind of influence with your, with your dad, obviously sounding like a wonderful creative guy. Did that have any influence on on kind of like your kind of your this stepping out there into education, stepping out there into kind of like a kind of like a career? I mean, was did you have subjects that you kind of like to focus on on in kind of school? Were you kind of like an English major, a maths guy? Did you like your art? What was your kind of your what was your kind of your go to subject that you liked at school? In? Uh yeah, I get I, my my dad was very verbal. There were mm. lots of uh, robust conversations around the dinner table, and so I gravitated towards words. Uh, uh -huh. Liked to read. I was a you know grew up with fantasy adventure novels like Wow Tolkien and David yeah. Eddings and Here's Anthony. And I've always loved sci-fi and, and fantasy yeah. adventure, and medieval worlds. You know, because anything could happen. And uh, um, I remember. Uh, I got into Dune a little bit, Frank Herbert's Dune. I even, I bought that when the game Dune came out, I bought that. I think when I was yeah. 11 years old or something like that. Uh, and the rule set for that for an 11 year old was pretty complicated. And I yeah, found myself yeah, yeah. Reading, reading the rule book, you know, over and over again. And even, even copying some of the rule book uh, passages onto note cards so that I could remember certain rule sets and, I think I started really getting into mechanics uh, at a young age, um, but I never really knew that there was an entire world out there of so-called Euro-style board games. They, they used to the moniker used to be German board games because yeah, a handful yeah. of you know German board game authors like Reiner Knizia 
and Klaus Teuber were the, you know, the mathematicians over there that just, you know, invented a ton of games, but eventually it kind of broadened a little bit. Um, but yeah, that I discovered uh, Euros, I guess, in the 90s. Um, and right, I okay. immediately fell in love with with titles like, you know, Puerto Rico, which was mm-hmm. number one on Board Game Geek for like five years in a row. And there were <laughs> tournaments you could go to and, and Tigris and Euphrates and Power Grid. I'm, let me think. Um, El Grande. Uh, there's a game called Taj Mahal that I love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, many, many games. And I, and I got hooked. And uh, yeah, so I started, when you play as many games as I started playing, eventually you start to think, well, man, if I created one, what would it be? Mm-hmm. So did you, did you continue into college and things like that then? Or did you go straight into kind of employment? Yeah, no, I went to, I went to college. I went to the University of Missouri and I okay. studied journalism. Um, now, wow, okay. within, within journalism, there's a, a field or a discipline called strategic communications, which is advertising, public relations. Uh-huh. And I majored in that. And then I went into the advertising world. I worked for, um, I worked for Footcone and Belding um, and some other ad agencies in Chicago um, and uh, was a copywriter, uh, a person that came up with uh, words and jingles and, and ads for wow. lots of different uh, clients like uh, Coca-Cola and Oscar Mayer and Kraft. Um, and so I did that for many, many years. And eventually I uh, went back to my alma mater, yeah. uh, University of Missouri, and I taught for 11 years in the strategic communication department in the journalism school. Wow. Is there, and you, with the type of, because I'm guessing from the journalism the journalism point of view, the advertising point of view, in your experience, is there people that you met that you're just like, I could just throw things at you all day and you could just come up with me with imaginative ways to kind of express that. And then there's other other people that it's like, they kind of, they've technically they've got everything on paper, but they maybe lack that little kind of extra spark that just pushes them over on the edge into, you know, oh, you'll be brilliant. You'll be able to write kind of football reports day in, day out, but I wouldn't be able to give you your own column because you would write three of them and then you would kind of dry out. Kind of, is there, is there that kind of, did you see that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a delineation between say a public relations practitioner or a, a, you know, a news writer. Um, Mm -hmm. They're, they're very good at, at, answering the who, what, when, where, and how, and, and writing, um, you know, the, the, the content of a news story. Um, but when it comes to, you know, saying things in a, in a creative way that, that it gets people's attention and makes them think about a product in a, in a way that they've never thought about it before. Um, that's where, when the kind of the creativity uh, takes over. And some of that can be taught or inspired. And some of it is just natural, you know, mm. there's some people that are comedically funny, for in- instance, or, and there are some people yeah. that are just simply creative. Um, and I remember a lot of the, a lot of my friends were writers and, but they were on the kind of more the left brain side of the side of things. And they would come to me and say, Hey, I have this great news story, but I can't think of a good headline. Uh, yeah. And, I would write the, you know, their headline for them. Um, 
But that's why I always gravitated towards advertising because of the creativity yeah. involved. And, and, and of course that creativity kind of, uh, was applicable and, and, and instrumental in the creation of board games because mm-hmm. along with the mechanics uh, of a, of a board game, there's also the, the theme, um, and, and the, uh, the story behind it, which is really, if you can integrate it with the mechanic seamlessly, mm-hmm. Then it, it's so much better. Is there anything that you look back on in your realm in your time of like your your advertising thing that you you still kind of gives you a chuckle or you still kind of makes you feel <clears throat> like warm inside? Going, yeah, I did that, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, let's see. I I worked on um, a uh, a campaign at the time. Um, there was uh, uh, Patrick Ewing of the New York Knicks um, uh, was was a big player, and uh, we did a promotion mm. uh, for the company I was with, where one lucky kid from school could could win uh, a day with Patrick Ewing. He'd basically go to the the kid's school and just wow. sit in right next to the kid uh, during during uh, during lunch or whatever, and um, and then um, it was, uh, we also partnered with uh, Warner Brothers and uh, had these Animaniac lunch boxes. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, one, one neat thing about advertising is just all of the, uh, the IPs uh, that you can leverage, whether it's the NBA or uh-huh. Warner Brothers and certain cartoons. And uh, that, that should, again, shows you the power of stories. Uh, and 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 uh, brands, um, people like to connect with uh, with stories that they can relate to. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, what was the jump? What was the jumping off point then? I mean, <clears throat> a lot of yeah. I mean, you're well known for you know the first the first F word, which is feudum. But was was there other games? Before that, that, that you were playing about, I mean, what was your kind of your creation, I guess your kind of creationary kind of journey? Did you, was Feudum one of these things that just popped, you went, popped out and went, whoop! It was like, oh my goodness, there's a huge fully formed board game here. Yeah. Or did it, was there certain iterations that you kind of ended up kind of going through before you kind of reached kind of like a final product? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, I, you know, I had played a lot of games and I, I was always on a quest for the holy grail of games. You know, mm-hmm. I always wanted to have the ultimate gaming experience, but I never quite found one that encompassed everything that I wanted in a game, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of mechanics that I love. I, I love action programming and area control and mm-hmm. just generally resource management. Um, and I, I wanted uh, the ability to uh to have all of those things rolled into a game and i couldn't find it so i i invented it um and at you know at the beginning the, the theme and the mechanics were kind of broadly integrated in my mind i i knew i wanted you know something that was open world or sandbox uh-huh. style where uh-huh. there was kind of minimal character limitations uh that were placed on a player and uh, let's see. I also played a lot of video games. I was inspired by video games like Grand Theft Auto, wow, uh, or Shadows of the Colossus. I don't know if you ever played that game, but it's just yes, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I wanted to create a game that 
um, that was that held together, and there was de definitely a linear path forward, but was also uh, gave um, truly multiple paths to victory and an open world experience. And so I started to invent feudum. So, did you? <clears throat> As, did it all? Did it? Did it? Was it becoming kind of like little bits coming together? Was there at some point that Feudum was actually a much smaller game? Because I see, you can understand. I've interviewed quite a few kind of people who have brought games, you know, and designed games, developed games, and brought them into the kind of the crowdfunding. This is during, you know, back in the day when Kickstarter was still seen as the be all and end all of kind of crowdfunding. And a lot of people seem to kind of start small and then, you know, then they grow, they go, okay, so this is my entry level game just to see if my games are, you know, my game ideas are going to work. And then I'm going to drop, you know, the bigger ones kind of down the line. And then you kind of get people like say yourself and say like Frank, Frank West, Frank, you know, um, Mark Nardling, uh, Nardlinger from, um, who did Vindication, you know, Frank did City of Kings, and then you get like yourself. And I remember you guys were all not too far apart in terms of time scale. I remember Feudum, and I remember f like looking at the artwork at Feudum and just like kind of instantly kind of going, wow, this looks kind of amazing. But what made you decide to go with that as opposed to kind of, I guess, dipping your toes in the water kind of first of all? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I always set out to invent the game that I wanted. I didn't, you know, my goal mm. was not to start small or to gain, you know, an initial following and then branch out from there. I just simply kind of blindly said, no, I want to make the game that I've always wanted to play. If other mm -hmm. people want to play, great. If, if not, that's fine too. So, you know, I, I wasn't trying to market or market myself or um, uh, appease anyone. Uh, or impress anyone. I just simply kind of made the thing that I wanted to play. And and there's there was this moment during playtesting when I realized, okay, the game is working. People have forgotten it's a prototype. They're they're mm -hmm. trying to strategize and win it. And that's when the real kind of fun began because the hard work is over. The fine tuning begins. I I mean, for any game, you have to have kind of this core mechanic, this 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 engine. And once the engine is functioning and, and working, then you can add little peripheral cogs to it that enhance the game. But the engine is is what uh, is is the thing that is is vital and powers every other uh, tangential element. And um, and so you know, once you have that engine, you can add other details like perfecting the rules or 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 creating the backstories of the, of the characters and. And, and creating, you know, user-friendly iconography and all of that. Yeah. So it's kind of a layering process. I, li I liken it to uh, a sculpture. You know, you have this big block of of stone and you just start chipping away a little bit. Yeah. And you, you keep fiddling with it, messing with it until it's, it's more and more polished. And then you play test the heck out of it. Um. I've got your web, your web, I've got a double screen. Your website is on to the right of me. So I keep side-eyeing because Feudum kind of keeps on kind of popping in, obviously alongside all the other kind of games. 
I'm I'm interested to know at what point the artwork was kind of brought in. Because I'm of I'm of I've not I've I don't think I don't think I've seen another game with similar artwork to Feudum. I could I think I could probably take a couple of components and a couple of cards or a part of the board from Feudum and I could show it to people and they would be able to say, Oh yeah, that's that's from that game. I think it's a fairly kind of recognizable kind of game. But at what point in the kind of the overall design process did you bring in that kind of level of art? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm a very visual person. So, you know, I knew just from being in advertising that oftentimes it's the the book cover that gets someone interested in reading a book. Yeah. And the same is true of, of board games as well. So I knew it was important and I'm a visual and I'm very visual. So I started my search for an artist. Um, and I remember being in Columbia, Missouri, and walking into an ice cream shop called Sparky's Ice Cream. And on the wall, uh, this it sounds it sounds fantastical, but this is exactly how it happened. Yeah. On the wall was a poster for a band that was going to come to town to play. I think it was Wilco, the uh-huh. band. Uh-huh. And it featured, it was poster art for the band, but it featured this, this, this kind of whimsical lumbering behemoth, uh, kind of in a cartoon style. And I thought to myself immediately, wow, that, <laughs> that's, that's, that this is my guy. Yeah. And there was no signature, no artist attribution on the poster. So I went online and I went to the band's homepage and I saw the poster and it, there was a small attribution on the website Yeah, and the name was Justin Schultz. So I did more searching and I, I found him and I sent him a, an email blindly. And I said, you don't know me, but I have this vision to make this game. I love your artwork. You want to collaborate with me? And to my surprise, he said, hell yes. And that's how it began. And and if you've looked at Justin's art, I mean, he has, you know, this uncanny ability to to lure you in with what I like to say uh, are superficially charming, whimsical images yeah. that upon closer inspection reveal something a little bit more heartbreaking or, or, or daunting. Um and uh, I li- love that juxtaposition between seemingly um, harmless things um, that turn out to be menacing or tragic. Uh, well, the fr- and, and so- I mean, the front cover of the box is quite literally like you don't look at it, you're caught by the monster kind of appearing around, mm-hmm. the, cor- around the crest of the hill. But it's pretty obvious yeah. he's kind of chasing the two people that are running away from him. Yeah. And the guy in the front is not looking happy at all. He's looking... No, no. I mean, he's, he's going to scoop those people off. up and throw them into his mouth like popcorn. I mean, yeah, that's that's not a good fate. <laughs> in, in terms... So you took you took Feudum to, uh, to Kickstarter at the time. Um, and it went... I mean, it, it, it funded... And it fu- it funded it funded relatively kind of well. What was the was it was it kind of like a different time? Was it a case that you kind of just put you put the game out there and then people kind of just found it and then started coming to, coming coming and kind of backing it, 
or was there quite a big kind of marketing effort? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing with you having a background in kind of, you know, advertising, knowing about marketing, you know, knowing about press releases and everything like that. Did you use, did you kind of go, oh, I can use my experience for my job on this kind of thing? Was yeah. there a lot of marketing build up kind of behind it at the time? Yeah, that's a good question. I, about a year and a half to two years before mm -hmm. I launched the Kickstarter campaign, I was at Gen Con mm -hmm. and I passed by a fella who was uh, hawking his game, so to speak. He was luring people in to try to play test his game. It yeah. was a game about winemaking and the name of the game was Viticulture and the name <laughs> of the designer was Jimmy Stagmeyer. And he's like, yeah, you want to play my game about winemaking? I'm like, uh, okay, sure. And anyway, we struck up a little bit of a friendship. I got his email. I started yeah. emailing him a little bit. And at the, at the time, he was writing a book called The Crowdfunder's Guide to Kickstarter. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, over the years, he's turned into this great guru um, and treasure trove of information for all board game designer entrepreneurs like myself at the time. Yeah. And I... I just essentially read his blog and read his book and knew that I needed to create an audience um, on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, um, do a pre-launch Kickstarter page. So I kind of um, became a, a Stagmire-ite, if you will, and kind of learned the ropes from, from a guy who had done it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did everything I could to establish a little bit of community before mm. a few launched on Kickstarter, but I had no idea uh, how well the game would do. I think I had a little bit of luck because um, uh, Richard Ham of Rado Runs Through yeah. Yeah. saw my game on Board Game Geek and started talking a little bit about how excited he was. And of course he had a huge following at the time. So that put Feudum on the map a little bit. Um, but I, I was not prepared for how well that first Kickstarter would do. Um, and, and, and I, and I wasn't really prepared that overnight I would essentially have a business. And I think that's always interesting about, um, Kickstarter and I think or crowdfunding in general and I especially think it's become more interesting where you see the difference between the people who have their crowdfunding as like a passion project that they put an awful lot of passion into it but then when the business side of things kind of comes around they get flummoxed by it <laughs> And they get, you know, and, 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 and if you get outside influence, outside influencing factors as well. I mean, the last couple of years we've seen like, we've seen like COVID, we've seen like the shipping prices, the crisis, we've seen the, the, the you know, the prices of kind of manufacturing kind of going, kind of going through the roof. Um, and it's interesting you saying kind of like, I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of ran something for 30 days and I ended up kind of having a business kind of out the back of it. What? Because you're, I take it, do you, did you go through like a crash then? And what I mean by that is you must have been kind of like going, you know, well, hey, we did it, we did it, we did it. And then the kind of the window closes and 
the funding, you know, the funding window shuts down. Two weeks later on, you kind of get the money. Was there a point there at all? You were kind of going, oh, we've, we've, we've done this now. And I've, (laughs) I've got six, I've got six figures kind of set in my bank account. And now I need to kind of make this, I need to make this happen. And I need to make this kind of work. Yeah, it, it happened, that happened, that experience happened the very first day. Right. Uh, I mean, the very first day, it, it was at $70,000. Um, <laughs> after 30, it was at 263000 <laughs> And what a lot of people don't know is after the campaign closed on Backerkit, I did twice that amount afterwards. And so all, all throughout, you know, and it, there was really no time for celebration. Yeah. There was more of a, how am I going to deliver on all of this in a way that uh, makes my customers happy? Because, uh, you know, you, you have a very keen sense of needing to fulfill your promise um, and not let anyone down. And so that, that was my focus. Um, you know, customer, I knew, you know, being in the marketing and advertising business, mm. how, how customer service is yeah. and, and how customers are everything. And I've always believed that even to the point of, you know, giving away the farm, if you will, just to make customers happy. Uh, um, and there are limits to that, of course, but um, yeah, I was determined to, to deliver the project and mm. um, make sure everyone was, was happy. And then the money that was left over, you know, I just put right, right into the business, uh, to, to continue, uh, the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Cause after, after the, after the first, um, after the first campaign, um, you then went on to create a couple of expansions, uh, for freedom. You had the, the Queen's army and then you had kind of rudders and, and ramparts. Did that, did that do two things? I take it at that point, you're like, well, I've got to continue kind of bringing kind of the money in and people are asking for expansions. But did that give you the option to kind of also release kind of second chances and even third chances for people to kind of get hold of Feudum again? I think my motive was, you know, I was a fan of the world that Justin and I had created. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that world to just keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, when you fall in love with an IP, mm-hmm. you want to expand it. Um, that's why, you know, books have sequels and movies have sequels. And, and I, and I wanted to do that for Feudum. And, and at the time I wasn't thinking, Oh, I'm going to create a bunch of more games. I mean, at that point I thought maybe Feudum is my only title and the title that I continue to run with. Yeah. Um, you think of say Tolkien, you know, when he created the Hobbit and he created Lord of the Rings and three, a trilogy. And it was all, it was all about that IP, that single IP, because it had uh, enamored so many fans. So why not go with it? And, and so that's what, that's the way I was with Feudum for a while. And then, and then at some point I'm like, okay, this, I've had my fun yeah. with this. Yeah. And I, think, I think now I'm ready to move on from that world. Now, a lot of the a lot of fans from from all of the world want me to continue uh, that, um, but at some point, you know, at some point, you start to develop interests in other IPs, and um, that's why I started thinking about 
other uh, themes and other games mm. and other mechanics. And um, yeah, why, why I have uh, several other games in the works. I mean, it's, it's like going back to to Jamie. I mean, Jamie did, I mean, he did, obviously he did Scythe to great success. And then since then he's, you know, he's got like um, uh, Invaders from Afar. Um, he's got the Rise of Fenris. These are all expansions, but they were all based around kind of introducing kind of, I guess, different mechanics into the this kind of uh, Scythe kind of main world. So you're, it sounds to me like you're looking to say, right, okay, well, the, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a line under this. I'm going to do... I'm now off to do my kind of my um my red rising or I'm looking to to see if there's a if there's a wingspan for odd bird which I'm surprised you know you should have signed wingspan I'm just saying mark I mean it would have been the first you know, <laughs> it would have been a perfect perfect fit but go I, as I say I'm a bit of an art snob so one of the things that struck me looking at the site was was fur which kind of reminds me a little bit of these kind of, um, it's like a 3D-ish kind of square blocky kind of character. It's a little like a, I don't know if that looks like an otter or it's not a squirrel because it'd have a different different tail. So first one of the first one of the titles that you're, that you're working on at the moment, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how that came to fruition and you know is it is it an offshoot of feudum that you couldn't use or is it something that you decided you sat down with a blank piece of paper and said let's do something different now yeah so i've i'm a big fan of worker placement games mm-hmm. uh, i love a lot of uve rosenberg's games agricola and caverna lahav um and I knew that I wanted to create a game with that um, mechanic. Um, and I knew that I wanted to use the Justin Schultz, the same artist. Mm. So um, I've always been um, fascinated by the, the uh, lumberjack industry, mm-hmm. the timber industry. And so I kind of decided to shift from fantasy to real world. And so this game takes place, fur takes place in the late 1800s in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. So it is a departure from fantasy, but it'll still feature, you know, the same character whimsy. Yeah. And um, like Feudum, it's going to feature resource management and a a working cyclical economy and um, uh, variable player powers. Yeah. um, and so the similarity comes in, in, in that variable player powers where every unique role that you take on comes with some special privilege. So if you become say a tree faller, that's what they call them. Uh, you know, you're good at chopping trees. Mm. Whereas if you're a log driver, you, you know, you have a knack for driving logs down the river mm-hmm. and recruiting more workers. Mm-hmm. And so the fun part of the game is that since you're kind of running a whole camp of timbermen, you can try out different roles, whether it's a, a, a shopkeeper or a craftsman, a, a log driver, faller, whatever. Yeah. And as far as unique mechanics, uh, fur has this kind of this unique worker deplacement mechanic. Um, so in order to succeed, you kind of have to put your workers in harm's way. And, and when one of your workers gets injured or, or displaced, yeah, you know, they, they enter a trade building where, you know, they're on light duty, essentially, and they become a foreman. And this allows that worker to recruit 
day laborers or flip flapjacks or you know even become uh, um, an impresario. An impresario is a, a kind of the, the guy who wore the top hat and said, yeah, "Step yeah. right up, yeah, yeah," and uh, and uh, see this vaudeville act, um, which was very much a a, a a place for entertainment during during that era. So is it is it a step down in terms of um I guess kind of involvement from Feudum because Feudum was a took up a lot of space. So is it is this is this a is this a, a much smaller kind of game overall in terms of time yeah, it, and mechanics and stuff like that? Yeah, I would say it's a, uh, not as heavy as Feudum for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's more of a medium weight game along the lines of of Caverna. Oh right, okay. So how long? Do, I mean, where where are you in the development for it? Are you are you close to kind of putting it out there? Is it is it kind of like play testing point just now? Where are you? Where are kind of, where are points are you? Yeah, kind of, uh... yeah. Oh, it's it's pretty it's pretty polished in terms of play testing mm-hmm. right now. It's a matter of the art and oh, uh, right, okay. Justin Schultz is busily working on the art. Uh, we we have meetings every every few weeks mm-hmm. uh, to talk about progress, and so yeah, that is. That is a, a, a continually evolving um, process. Um, and the, the, the game, however, that is very, very close to being released on Kickstarter is an entirely different uh, game altogether. Is and that, it, what one's that one is fled. Ah, the other F word. It's the four. It's a four-letter for this one. You're, are you, no, are you just are you just edging along very very slowly, and your next one's just going to be. It's you know it's funny because I you know I was about to break that trend, um, yeah. and w- was just going to give that up, but things just kind of fell into place, and and yeah, I'm just going to go with it now. I'm just going to, I mean, you're going to just make a game as long as it's got, as long as it begins with an F because that's, yeah, you know. if I run out of F words, I guess I'm done. Don't give an F anymore. Um, so what's, what's fled all about? Let's, let's break that down a little bit. Then. Well, fled is a tactical card and tile escape game. Oh, it's it's also based on history. It, it's uh, based on a 19th century prison called Spike Island, which is kind of in your neck of the woods, actually. I think, um, and it's it's a it was a historical British fort turned island prison off the south coast of Ireland. Oh right, okay. It's kind of yeah. uh, kind of like your it's like um, Alcatraz in the United States in, in a way. Yeah. Um, and the the first prisoners were just these young lads, and many of them were detained for minor infractions like stealing a potato during the, the potato family. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And and things, you know, things were so bad during that time that it drove these these young lads, like when I say young lads, I mean like they're 15, 16, and it drove them to petty theft. But in the mid 19th century, you know, the British government at the time, they they didn't take too kindly to any kind of stealing so you could get locked up for good. Um, so in this game, you play the role of a, of a prisoner mm-hmm. uh, guilty of some minor infraction. It's, you know, every character in the game is actually, there's a little place in the back of the rule book where you can learn about your prisoner. Um, and so naturally you try to escape this, this injustice for, for being locked up for 
mm. you know, stealing a pint of milk or one guy, one fella uh, was uh, put in prison for, um, for being married to two women. And yeah, you could go to jail for, for, for bigamy at, at, at that time. So it's uh, yeah, it's all based on history. So it, it was kind of fun to research uh, the, the game and the prisoners and um, uh, but it's still kind of whimsical. It's still yeah, whimsical. Yeah. yeah. So how, how, how'd you play it? What's what kind of, you said it's a kind of like yeah. a, a card so, kind of tile based game. So what's... yeah, well, during the game, you manage a hand of tiles. You have mm-hmm. five tiles in your hand. They're kind of like cards, but also tiles. And you, you know, you first add a tile to the prison mm-hmm. and then you discard uh, a, a couple of tiles to move from room to room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you replenish your hands. So the, that there are three parts to the turn. And along the way, you're going to be collecting contraband, um, like buttons and stamps um, or plum cake in this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you're going to trade for the tools that you'll need to escape, uh, like uh, like a key or a file. Yeah. Uh, uh, and if you're not in the right rooms when the governor, that's what they call the warder, yeah. the governor whistles you to roll call, then any nearby warder could put you in shackles or, or worse, send you to solitary confinement. And so you score victory points for collecting items and for escaping. Ah, right. Okay. So the, the the whole point of it is you are kind of moving around the prison, but at the same time, kind of collecting the resources that are going to go towards your kind of your victory point total at the end. But you've got to watch kind of what direction where you're going, because if roll call gets called, then if you're not in the right place at the right time, then you're basically, you're essentially getting kind of penalized. Right. You get actually sent back to your bunk. Right. You okay. have to kind of start your bunk again and navigate your way through, through all of the prisons. Uh, towards the outer perimeter, which is the the, um, the place where where uh, escape routes are possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, have you been have you been able to get this kind of like play tested? Is there a bit of if you? I mean, and what's what's your approach to kind of play testing? Are you doing it in physical format? Are you doing it on like kind of tabletop simulator as well? Or? So, I actually sent um, uh, a prototype game. Uh-huh. Uh, to a couple of uh, blokes uh, that happened to also do a lot of playtesting for Uwe Rosenberg. Oh, right. Uh, okay. And so I sent uh, the game to to those guys, and they gave me a lot of uh, 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 great feedback. Mm-hmm. And then I also um, uh, uh, used the talents of the very talented Seth Jaffe. All right. Okay. Uh, he's the fellow behind uh, Crusaders. Yeah. Crusaders, and he's also very a very good um, developer. So he's going to get the an official developer credit f- for for Fled for helping me uh, play test and develop mm-hmm. it. Um, and so it is uh, it is very very tight right now. And and uh, it's uh, in fact I have prototypes that I'm sending to reviewers um, right now. Actually, in my house they're 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 boxed, and I just am gathering together some reviewers that. Uh, uh, would like to, to, to try it out and, um, you know, that, so that I can feature any favorable review on my Kickstarter page. So yeah, it's, it's ready to go. My wife and I played it just, uh, probably about five times last weekend. Yeah. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm very, very pleased because it's pretty tight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
what's been the what's been the approach like to marketing kind of this time compared to as I say like Fudum? Have you just have you followed the kind of the same path or have you noticed because Fudum was, you know, pre twenty twenty. Have you noticed yeah. a kind of a change in the kind of the landscape? Have you even looked at maybe moving away even from Kickstarter or trying somewhere else? Or is it the familiarity that you have with kind of the Kickstarter platform? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I wrote an article um, about that recently where there was a time when uh, we were talking about Jamie earlier where he actually mm. came off the platform. Yeah. Um, I think the difference between me and someone like Jamie is, you know, he's got tens of, he's developed a contact list of tens of thousands of followers. So he has yeah. a kind of a built-in audience base with his Stonemeyer blog or whatever. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that Kickstarter is still kind of this marketing hype machine with uh, backers that are so, you know, ready to back your game. They're called super backers, you know, and um it's hard to match that level of publicity. Even if you have to give a little bit, bit of the profit away, um, yeah, yeah. it's still worth that kind of exposure. So I'm definitely still a big fan of Kickstarter or for that matter, uh, GameFound or some of the other, you know, backer kits got a crowdfunding um, yeah, yeah, platform. Yeah. So um, I still think it's, it's uh, important and, you know, it's the democratization of venture capital, right? It's it's instead of having to take out a mortgage on your house to pay your artist and manufacture something, you basically get early adopters to say, "Yeah, we'll yeah, we trust you. We'll we'll give you some money to pre-order your game, and you can use that to manufacture it." So yeah, yeah, um, I, I I'm a very still a big fan of uh, crowdfunding. Yeah, I think as I alluded to earlier, I think there's there's been a couple of times of late that uh, it's it's had a little bit of a wobble. Um, sometimes exterior factors, but also I think uh, I've been quite publicly, <laughs> I, I publicly slagged off Kickstarter for saying when they're saying yes, we're going down the blockchain route, and it's like, yeah, you okay. know the the whole <laughs> the whole um yeah I re- I remember that I think they've kind of. Uh, cleared that up a bit. (laughs) Yeah, they've released a press release to say how drunk they were when they released it. Sorry. (laughs) You know, a lot of uh, a new new entrepreneurial uh, designers, uh, they were very unfortunate to experience the supply chain issues during COVID and they underestimated shipping costs and freight costs, which tripled or quadrupled. And it just basically took away their margins. And so that was very, very sad. Um, But things have gotten a lot better now. So that's, things are kind of clearing up and uh, more stories that hope are behind us. The, you know, you, you asked what has changed the, the influential, or the influencer market has changed. It's grown. It's it's gotten very robust. There are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of you know tier one and tier two influencers out there with followings from everywhere from you know five hundred uh, followers subscribers to seventy five thousand subscribers on YouTube, um, and. The, the one of the biggest differences that the being in the industry, I, I know a lot of these folks. I've I've been to trade shows. I've met yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have a growing uh, contact list of of, of uh, influencers and reviewers. And um, 
And so I'm able to tap into that now. Um, and that'll, you know, that'll help me. Is there a, is a particular criteria that you look for, um, in reviewers? I know that, um, that J, you know, Jamie has, I don't know why I keep bringing him up. I don't know what it is. It's just one of these, it's just that he kind of, um, he kind of says his review policy is quite simple that, uh, I want you to have, if you're going to be reviewing my game or producing any content, I think he prefers it to be like on a permanent kind of fixture. And we've had, I've had discussions with other um, people that kind of review games and create media and things like that. And I write, I've got my blog that I write as well as the, so I review games. I post some of the reviews on Board Game Geek. Um, I do post on Instagram as in, but I post Instagram generally, I'll put some of the pictures of the, some of the pictures of the game that I put together for the review. And I'll kind of almost kind of post an excerpt of part of the review and say, right, if you go to the review now, you know, if you go to the, the blog now, you can kind of read the review. So it's almost like a gateway as opposed to kind of posting the actual thing. I don't touch TikTok now, um, because there doesn't seem to be any kind of permanency. It seems to be something that's there for a bit and then you just disappear unless somebody finds you and decides to kind of go through your videos kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but what I'm just interested in your kind of take, I mean, what kind of, is it, is it a case that I'm not going to try and put words in your mouth here, but does it matter if it is somebody that's got say 50,000 followers on Instagram and the, they cover fled even if it means that they get kind of eyes in it for a couple of weeks, because who cares what happens six months down the line, as long as it's kind of out there or, you know, what's your kind of your, what would you, you see your kind of position is on this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that over the years I have added to my influencer list and it's, mm -hmm. you know, several hundred, several hundred uh, influencers long. Mm -hmm. And so, I only have 10 prototypes because, you know, having Panda Manufacturing is, that's the, that's the one I use. Yeah. Uh, good, good folks there, Michael Lee um, and David Lippman is my project manager, but uh, um, they, you know, they're, they're not cheap making prototypes. It's not no. it's kind of expensive. And so I, I can't send it to everybody. And so you have to kind of figure out, well, if I can, if only 20 to 30 reviewers are going to see this, then you want to maximize your exposure. So, I mean, I am influenced by the number of followers, subscribers that yeah. they have. And yeah. so there's a couple of, you know, there's the low hanging fruit, you know, the, the, the dice tower, the, uh, uh, you know, Rado runs through, um, those, those kind of those kind of big, big ones. Yeah. Um, and you also have to think internationally, uh, Leisure of Games, um, um, the, the, the uh, Knicks out of France. Um, uh, but then there are kind of like mid-tier folks um, that you, that you want to give a shot and even some new folks uh, that are just kind of starting out, but who have kind of a, a great personality, uh, you know, kind of almost like dating, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you want to give those folks a shot too. And so if they reach out and they're, they're polite, um, I'll, I'll definitely send them a game if they can pass it along to the next person. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the reviewers know that, 
hey, I'll keep this for a week and then pass it along. And mm. as long as that happens, then sure, you can kind of uh, uh, give it to folks with, that are just kind of cutting their teeth in the industry. But and then there are, and then there are other folks that you become friends with, uh, you know, Lance over at Undead Viking or or Jimmy Hudson at, at Board Game uh, Spotlight. Yeah. The, oh, uh, the folks at um, the Se- the Secret Cabal. I, I, oh, the name was yeah, a- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and, and I've listened to that and I think those guys are absolutely fantastic. And uh, so, you know, you want to send your game to to influencers whose work you appreciate and whose work makes you laugh. Um, uh, not to not to uh, stroke your ego, but, you know, your your manner in your show is is quite entertaining. A lot of a lot of times you don't realize that, you know, people people have different um uh emphases uh, some folks just want to do podcasts some people just want to do reviews and, and um and they don't do kickstarter reviews so like making sure that that's obvious to designers i think is important otherwise you could miss out yeah i think i think there's also the other thing is as well as taking it from like a creator point of view is that at the beginning it's very very easy when one channel that you do kind of starts to kind of not do numbers, but you get regular because do numbers sounds clinical and cold. It's like, I, I like the fact that like if, if I get like, say in the first, you know, when you release it, when you release a podcast episode, there is nothing cooler than seeing the first couple of hours, the first couple of hundred people kind of, you know, they're automatically kind of downloading it. But I like to think that over the next kind of couple of days, they're potentially going to be somebody that's making a choice to spend an hour with myself and whoever I'm guesting with. You know, that they're going to have a laugh, or they're going to they're going to go, "Oh, that's interesting," or they're going to go, "He's being absolutely ridiculous again." But I'm having some kind of slight impact in some way, kind of maybe making. Um, a really, really wonderful day that they're happening <laughs> slightly kind of better. Or just if they're having a crappy day, kind of going, yeah, okay, well, you know, that kind of thing. But then I think the trap is to say like, okay, I'm I'm, I'm doing my podcast. That's doing well. Let's see what video I can do. Let's do some writing. Let's do some photographs. And sometimes there is that pressure to kind of be everywhere to everybody all at once kind of thing, if you know what I mean. And and it's a it's a difficult battle because <clears throat> I've done YouTube videos, and I've had people say I really really I really really like your videos because you know I just like because you still got the same kind of chatty kind of conversation when you do the reviews, but then it's kind of like unless you're kind of getting, and it's strange because unless you are kind of getting that kind of a decent viewing figure on videos, they're a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> to put together so um yeah so it's kind of a strange it's kind of a strange place to be in so i'm quite i'm quite i'm in my nice little rut um i'm quite happy and content i do my podcast i get to speak to wonderful people like yourself and then i do the review stuff but um you know recently i've started writing for tabletop gaming magazine which is like uk's um it's a it's a kind of a printed pressed uh, printed and pressed on trees kind of uh, magazine which uh, I've started writing for as well which is which is a whole other strange thing is to and I guess you probably had this when you got your first kind of 
manufactured copy of Feudum to actually see, to, to open up the cardboard box and see your name printed on the front cover. So it's kind of like you're flicking through a magazine and I've written a couple of articles and done a couple of reviews. But to see my name attached to a review that's out there and people can actually walk into their local newsagent and pick up and buy is kind of a bit, it's kind of strange. It's a different, it's a different thing. But yeah, it, it, it makes sense because, you know, as you're kind of finding your way and establishing yourself as an influencer, it's good to dabble because you yeah. don't know what's going to what's going to float your boat. Uh, yeah. And then as you go along, it might be that you decide to niche yourself. I mean, that's what happened with uh, James Hudson of Druid City Games. I reached out to him and he he doesn't do uh, uh, reviews anymore, no. but he used to. Yeah. Um, and then other folks decide to niche like Edward over at Heavy Cardboard. Well, he just does the heavy games. Yeah, or yeah. Rodney at Watch It Play. Well, everyone knows Rodney flips the box and tells you how to play a game. And I guess it just depends uh, on yeah. the evolution of your show and and where you're the most happy and where you gain the most following and how yeah. what you're most appreciated for. Yeah, I think what's interesting at the moment is the fact that we're starting to get, and I, I've talked about this in the past, but we're starting to kind of get groups and gangs. It's like the Jets and Sharks. Because um, yeah. we're starting to kind of like get, like Rodney's got a crew. Like Rado's got a crew, <laughs> you've still got the dice tower. It's like, and I, I made this joke before, but it's still funny. It's like that scene in Anchorman, Mark, where they all meet each other in the car park. The different kind of TV crews, they get like Canadian TV and the network and the sub network, and it's like, are they going to fight? <laughs> it makes sense though, because you know, there's, you know, the the industry is still pretty small. Yeah. Right. And so it can't just infinitely get bigger and bigger. At some point, there has to be some consolidation and people join up, join forces. Um, yeah. uh, Cause it's, it's hard to, to get out there in front and make a name for yourself. Cause people have so many options, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you can get people that just go from nowhere to, to kind of like a huge firework. <laughs> And they and they and they brighten the sky for ages, and then they just disappear, and you never see, you never can see them again. It's like what? Well, and then the, the and the worst thing about it is, and I noticed this myself when I took a break from podcasting for a while, is that there's so much choice out there in terms of kind of like media, in that if you do disappear for a while, then it's not you don't get people kind of you don't go oh there's the hounds the hounds are coming to track me down and trying to figure out where I went. It's kind of like he's just gone. It's like, it's like, there's another five, there's like, oh no, I started listening to this other podcast. You know, they, they've got wizards on their podcast. So I started listening to kind of, to kind of that one, which is kind of always interesting. Getting back to Fled, because we're clawing this back like some kind of honey badger uh, going through a termite's <laughs> nest. Um, Have you got kind of like a price on, have you thought about kind of like final prices for pledge levels and things like that at all? Yeah, it's um, it's probably in the forty dollar range wow. for a pledge. Yeah, yeah, that's that, and that sounds that just goes to show this the kind of where we are with board game prices. But to me, forty dollars is kind of like I'm going, hmm, that's about thirty four quid. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually pretty. That's a pretty, that's a decent, 
that's a kind of a decent price. Are you going to be, are you um, looking at kind of like stretch goals and stuff like that um, with the kind of the current climate? Are you looking at just saying, right, well, this is the game and if you pledge, you're getting the best version of the game or are you kind of working on kind of, because there seems to be this like drip feed marketing kind of thing going on with a lot of people. It's like kind of like basing it on if we get, a hundred followers of the campaign will unlock this if we get kind of a hundred comments on it if you get a hundred you know likes on this instagram post we'll kind of unlock these kind of things are you looking at that kind of strategy as well or is it just here's the game if you back it we just get lots and lots of games out there i've seen i've seen publishers do both Mm. um i that backers are, you know, they're fairly adaptable. They they respect it if a publisher doesn't want to do stretch goals, uh-huh. and then. But I, I personally like stretch goals. I think it makes the uh, the campaign fun. It sort of is the original spirit of Kickstarter yeah. to uh, to have stretch goals, and I I do think it incentivizes people to tell others because they want the best version of the game or they want yeah. the extra. Uh, bits in the game and so they tell other people so that they can themselves uh get something more mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah I, it will it will there will be stretch goals for sure cool cool and i think you know one one great thing about the game is that i'm i reached out to clemens franz who you know as you know is the artist to a lot of uve rosenberg's yeah games. yeah yeah uh, uh Gricola, caverna boone lake uh he did uh, recently and uh and it's been wonderful working with him. I, I just, on kind of a whim, I reached out. I said, hey, Clemens, um, you may not know me, but I'm, I'm the fellow that designed Feudum, and I, lo- I love your artwork, would love to collaborate with you. To my surprise, he said, oh, yeah, I know Feudum. Yeah, I'll work with you. <laughs> That's oh, so weird, okay. isn't it? It's I, so I, weird I, when somebody does that. I'm more famous than I thought. <laughs> it's so weird, but that just, you know, that occasionally does happen if I email somebody and they go, you know, you might have heard me because I never kind of go in because I've done that before. You go in and you go, well, I'm part of this big podcast. And they go, who? Never heard of you. <laughs> but it's kind of weird when you kind of go and it's always it's always somebody that you kind of never expected to kind of like even know you. And it's called, yeah, yeah, I know who you right. are. And it's like, oh, oh no. Is that, is that knowing me in a good way? Is that knowing me, me in a bad way? It's really bizarre to go to a trade show. There, there was, I'll never forget this. I was at the BGG con down in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah. And I was walking in the hallway and someone recognized me. Like, it's one thing to know the name of the author of a game. It's yeah. another to know their face. <laughs> so Imagine that was a bit scary. He recognized me and he said, um, yeah, you're the guy who created Feudum. I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, on page 17 of the rule book, uh, there's a rule, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I just wanted to know what the answer was. And I told him the answer. And then he goes, thanks. And he walked away. <laughs> I want you to change this. Here's 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 the tipex to whiten it out. I want you to write in what the proper rule should be. It's like, all right then. I still, you know, I don't think I'll ever get over people wanting me to sign the game. That's bizarre. You know, I, I sign a, f- a fair amount of autographs at trade shows, and that's um, cool. It's so you know, it, it's a niche world. I mean, I I I suppose when you're in your element. Um, 
you are a somebody. And then when you go to the local schnooks, uh, you're nobody. Again, well, you could, so. I mean, you can still head to Walmart and get your shopping without people kind of <laughs> sidling, sidling up to you. Yeah. You know, you're at the, you're yeah. at the, the frozen fish well, section and something coming up and going, I recognize you. It's funny because I, I was, you know, kind of starstruck, I guess, with Clemens Franz because, hey, everybody knows his artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but he's just, you know, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, <laughs> exactly. just like everyone else. And I, he's actually very, very responsive, very professional. He, he, he tried to understand my vision for the game and then try stuff that I hadn't thought of. It's, it's really brilliant to work with the guy. And um, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been great. Awesome. So do you have a time scale for when you're going to be bringing, bringing Fled to kind of Kickstarter then? Yeah, well, I'm at the uh, reviewer stage of the prototype. So once I send these out yeah. uh, over the next uh, couple of months, I hope to generate some buzz. Cool. I'll include that buzz in those videos uh, on my Kickstarter page, mm. which is pretty much done. Uh, the pre-launch page is pretty much done. It has, it's not public yet, yeah. but it's done. And so when I'm ready, uh, I will I will announce the Kickstarter launch date and uh, start to reach out to, you know, my, my, my database of, of folks to get their following followers interested. So I guess I haven't answered your question. Um, <laughs> you had Q, no. Q4, Q4 of this year. It's like dealing with a politician, Mark. Just try and get <laughs> to answer the question. If, but if people have listened along tonight and they want to keep an eye on your bad self, where do you exist on the internet webs? Where can we find you? Oddbirdgames.com. Where's that come from? I didn't ask. Where's it come from? Where's it when I was a kid, my dad, I, you know, I was kind of an eccentric, imaginative kid. And my dad would say, you are an odd bird, wow. son. That's, you know, and um, that's I, it was yeah, a that. little bit pejorative i suppose but i kind of i wore it uh and and and, and assumed it so yeah and then um uh i guess you can also find me on facebook at oddbird twitter at oddbird game oddbird games yeah. um oddbird by itself i believe is um wine or champagne from <laughs> europe so, yeah that, that's fun too so get yeah get both you know get yourself a get yourself a bottle and get yourself a game and then you'll have a good you'll have a good evening um exactly what we'll do is we'll put all those links in the show notes so that we have got notes to show if you're interested in keeping an eye on what we're up to um there's a couple of ways you could do it i am gonna brag and boast and say look if you're gonna go and pick up the if you pick up an issue of uh, Tabletop Gaming Magazine, there is a chance you will see my words written and printed there. Um, but we're all across the social medias. If you search for We're Not Wizards, you'll find me on all the different lovely, shiny, bright, and silver-foiled covered places. Um, and if you like what you've listened to tonight, then please consider going to your podcast catcher of choice and giving us a rating or a review. Uh, if you're going to, like, say, Apple Podcasts, then make sure uh, if you're going to give us stars, you don't give us 10 stars because that makes me big-headed and just unbearable. But don't give me one star because it makes us cry. 
uh, give me like five. Because it's average and uh, I'm just a little bit average. But the person who's not been average is the rather wonderful, rather fantastic Mark Swanson. Thank you very much for guesting, sir. It has been my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. There's only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Mark? We are not there wizards. You and the second thing is to say goodbye. So before he fled, <laughs> before he fled, before he fled, I don't even write these down. They just come popping off the top of my head. So before he flees Obviously. or before he fled, it's a goodbye from Mark. Say goodbye, Mark. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye. goodbye. It's, it's an ability to not be able to speak from me, but it's a goodbye. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, make something awful. And if you're going to get yourself off that island, escape, you know, flee, fled, whatever. But check out when it comes to Kickstarter and check out all of the odd bird. Until the next time, goodbye. Wizard is never linked. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.